Greetings, dear listeners. Before we get started, a reminder to head on over to wisdomofcrowds.live and consider becoming a paying subscriber if you're not one yet. You'll get access to, among other things, the full conversation, as well as other subscriber-only benefits. And don't forget to give us a like and review on your favorite podcast app. With all that out of the way, on to the show. Okay, hey Sam. So I think that I'll do a little intro of you. Um, oh, amazing! We have a tr- this is we have so a tr- formal. We have a treat. We have um, the political philosopher, actually my favorite philosopher, one might say, uh, Samuel Kimbriel. He's um, so many of you will know him. He's an editor at large at Wisdom of Crowds and has appeared on the pod a number of times. And um, just by just by way of some background, uh, Sam is also the author of a book I highly recommend. It's called Friendship as Sacred Knowing, colon, Overcoming Isolation. So for any of you who want to overcome isolation, it might be the book for you. And we'll, and need 120 pages of reading about um, yeah. like Heidegger and Derrida. Yeah. Wow. That sounds, yeah, that, that sounds really appealing. Um, we'll include <laughs> a link to that in the show notes. And... Um, and, you know, I'll, I was just thinking about this just a few minutes ago, Sam. Um, oh, I should also note that you're the director of a really great initiative at the Aspen Institute, the Philosophy and Society Initiative, which focuses, like we do at Wisdom of Crowds, on first principles. And we'll get into some differences that you and I have when it comes to first principles and how we kind of orient ourselves to the world. We'll be talking about death a little bit. So dear listeners, stay, you know, prepare yourselves for that. I was reflecting a few minutes ago that it's pretty cool when you have a close friend who's also a professional philosopher, because it means that like when I'm struggling with certain issues and thinking about my own mortality and trying to work through, like, first of all, what is it I actually believe about my own mortality? And then, you know, discussing that, like, I have someone who can really provide some pretty deep insights. And uh, so I recommend that everyone find at least one friend who is a philosopher, because that's what philosophers are all about, like asking the foundational questions about how to live well, why we do what we do, and how to think about the world. And those are like really frustrating at dinner parties. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. Well, well, that gets us to something we talked about in the last, well, Demir and I talked about in the last episode, which was death. You have a different, and mortality, and you have a different view on that, and I actually don't fully know all the things that you're going to say, and we can sort of use this episode as an exploration, like, why do we differ on some key questions that have to do with... um death and fulfillment and happiness. But maybe just say, because I'm really, I've been getting into the happiness literature, as listeners will know, and as you know, Sam, and I think there are some pretty useful insights in all of that. You're much more skeptical. So I was thinking that might be a good jumping off point for our conversation. Make your case against 
not against happiness per se, I think you're pro-happiness generally, but against happiness studies as its own field. Like all of these books and self-help things and I mean, our whole culture is suffused with this, I think, this obsession with being happy. Yeah, this is this is going to be fun. And I um, I'm actually not sure where we agree or disagree. Like we um, I don't know. We probably see each other as frequently as um, anyone that we see in Washington. Like we're <laughs> like, I don't know, three quarters of the same events together and are constantly hanging out casually. But I'm actually like really interested in what your view is here. And I'm, I'm not totally sure I can predict it either. So it'll, it'll be kind of fun. I want to. Um, so. I was thinking just as we were thinking about this episode about this thing that happened um, like right before COVID, I was at this like retreat thing. I was on a scholarship, but it was like this thing that's like, I don't know, $3,000 or something for a weekend. And it's mainly people that are like in their twenties and early thirties. So like the demographic of people that can afford like $3,000 plus accommodation for a weekend is like not really high when you're in that. So it's like very elite kind of context. So you so it's paid like, 3000 or they were paying $3,000 to listen to people like you? So I was there on scholarship, just like oh, okay, able okay. to watch. And oh. because like, I'm not a person who can afford $3,000 for a weekend. However, uh, a lot of the other people, it was like, you know, um, someone was like chief counsel for Reddit there were like a whole bunch of like Bay Area people who had um, done done very well early mm. on, you know, some some Wall Street, whatever. Um, and I remember, you know, because I, I, you know, at this point I had spent most of my life like reading books and sitting in the academy and whatever. And I remember it was so interesting. So there were like ongoing seminars and then they did like a one-off lunchtime seminar. So like we, we all got an email that was like, hey, if you want to talk about this other thing over lunch, you can. And that other thing was microdosing. And hmm. so you get all of these people who are like among the most like successful people in their generation under the like normal American terms of like what counts as success come to this lunchtime conversation. And it's clear they're all dealing with like crushing anxiety, like deep relational kind of misgivings and um and then their kind of momentary solution to this is they're like that that problem has gotten so bad they've tried the other things like they do the exercise routine they do yoga whatever and like that's not solving the issue and so then their interest in microdosing was i'm feeling very anxious and so maybe the way to deal with this is to kind of you know constantly shoot low levels of hallucinogens into my bloodstream and okay okay I, just just as a little explanatory note because uh, my parents do listen to the podcast um how would you well i guess you sort of said so microdosing is basically taking hallucinogenic hallucinogenic drugs like mushrooms for example and the idea is what like what is that so supposed I, to accomplish it's very low level dosages and i mean you know yeah the debate about drugs is like an interesting one i'm i'm not sure that it's um i think for some people it's actually like it's actually like very very positive experience in this case like this is not like an anti-drug point as such it's more so like the way it works is like you have some kind of patch or some delivery mechanism that allows you to uh have this like at a very very low dosage but kind of constantly there in the background and the idea is like it cuts down anxiety or it gives you some sort of um so, some sort of stability what I found interesting about it was just like a kind of ethnographic point was, which is like, these are like very successful people who have like, like if you think about the, like the 
distribution of American society and what that like America and like I think all societies in a certain sense are like a theory of happiness and America is like one very specific theory and it has to do with um, success and ambition wealth individual autonomy like being able to you know like these are all people who are like going on like big ski, ski trips in Jackson Hole and like able to uh, like travel across the world almost whenever they want and you know a whole series of like options that are not there for the majority of the population and those are the people who are feeling so dissatisfied that they're looking for like a solution like this so i like i find this is story that a like surprise that, though i don't know i don't know what do you think <laughs> i mean <laughs> it seems like they're precisely the people who would be most unhappy okay so go go through that run, but maybe run it's not self-evident yeah. like I, you know maybe listeners will think differently than they'll hear about how rich these people are and assume that they should be happier than the rest of us. But we do know that there is a sort of, sometimes at least, an inverse relationship between very high levels of wealth and happiness. And even income stops having a big effect on happiness, like above $70,000 or so. Once you actually have a certain level of minimal comfort, you know, multiplying that by 10 times isn't really going to have, it's diminishing marginal returns. And we know this, like when you have too much of something, each additional unit of it becomes less useful and less nice. And that's why, you know, overeating, you know, even if it's an amazing meal, you know, whatever, this stuff is probably like yeah. obvious to a lot of people. Yeah. But, um, but I think that these are people who are also just extremely ambitious. And I think the theory of the American case is that the more ambition, the better. So I think that what does ambition mean? It means that you raise expectations for your own life. And we know that when we raise expectations for democracy, we get disappointed. It's similar in our own lives as individuals. We raise expectations about what we're capable of accomplishing or doing or how happy we think we should be. And we're bound to disappoint. We're, we're bound to find that we can actually meet our own standards. So this is maybe not to go on a tangent, but this is the argument, I suppose, for medieval peasants being happier than a rich Silicon Valley tech entrepreneur because the medieval peasant had much worse quality of life in, in absolute terms, but the peasant wasn't really expecting a whole lot. So there's no kind of dissonance between what he wants for himself and what he actually has. He sort of takes his lot in stride and this is the way it is. I mean, the condition of modernity is that we now no, no longer accept the way things are and we always want more. And we know that more is possible because we see it. We have access to information, images, movies, art, whatever. We know that another world is possible. And then when it turns out it's not possible for us, there's a disjuncture. But anyway, that's a, feel free to take that well, so, where you will. So tell me, well, tell me, tell me like, um, where does happiness studies fit? for you like why do you like it um well I, yeah <laughs> it's interesting i think demir and i both dislike it but for like almost opposite reasons which we which we'll get into but like you really like it so like tell me tell me like where does it why does it hit you as something that like has been i'm not sure I, i'm not sure i really like it i think that i find it useful and intriguing because 
part of me does think that when you're trying to figure something out, you read the literature about it. You know, if you want to learn about democracy, you read democratic theory. And if you want to learn about how to be happy, you read happiness theory. You And maybe this is where I'm maybe too deferential to experts that, well, first of all, can you really be an expert on happiness? Um, that's, I suppose, its own question. But there are a growing number of, you know, psychologists and um, and just thinkers more broadly. I think a lot of people delve into this now and write books about it that do very well. And I do think you have to kind of take it with a grain of salt. You can't like get a happiness book and think, well, this is the holy grail. I'm going to be happy now. Then, then we get back to the problem of raising expectations too high. Keep them like relatively low. Like, okay, this will be interesting. It'll give me some maybe tips, things that I can introduce in my own life around the margins maybe ways of kind of cognitive processing, because in the end, everything we experience is experienced in consciousness. And that's a product of our, of our mind. And we have to think about how to control our mind more in order to process things in a more constructive manner. So if something bad happens, instead of like panicking or freaking out or kind of going into like some despondent sulking mode in your room, you know, the Stoics would say, instead, you take you take something bad as a challenge, as a way to test your own mettle. So there's just little tricks like that that you can do where it's just a matter of how do you process the events that are happening around you. So I think that can be that can be useful. What I what I think I don't love is the striving aspect of it that. Because one of my concerns is that in try in trying really hard to accomplish something, you end up making that outcome even more unlikely. Like that's the danger with, I mean, some some might say it's similar with love. If you're if you're obsessed with finding love and you're searching for it, it's going to exceed your grasp because you're actually creating the conditions that make it less likely that something as serendipitous as love will actually happen in your life. So that we have to be careful about that in, you know, if we really want happiness, we might find that we're pushing it further away. So um, that would be my concern. And we're telling everyone that they can be happy and they should be happy. That's a problem like on the societal level, because not everyone should be happy a lot of the time or most of the time you know, you should probably be happy only sometimes. And we're creating this expectation <laughs> that things should be easy and fun and fulfilling and that you should feel peace. Like actually, I don't know, life historically has been about suffering and I feel like we're losing sight of how to live with bad things or how to accept that maybe we shouldn't be happy and that's like an evolutionary thing that if we were happy too much of the time, like a lion would eat us. So this is also a question of human survival that the human psyche evolved the way that it did because being happy, like you're going to be just like having too much fun, kind of lazy, enjoying your life. Something's got to push you. So actually some degree of unhappiness is what makes us creative and interesting 
and it pushes us to accomplish more. But this is where I'm guessing you'll disagree, you'll take issue. I think it's actually good to have higher levels of productivity, like on the societal <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> level. Like I think that boosting overall GDP is like a worthwhile endeavor. Yeah, yeah. Okay, right. So I think my critique of happiness studies is basically my critique of the microdosing story, which is... I, so, yeah, my, my view here is like kind of the opposite direction of Demir's. Like Demir seems to think, right, so like you and I were having this this argument like a couple weeks ago and Demir was sitting there and like he was also kind of going into his kind of sense. But I think I think that his picture of this goes the opposite direction from mine, which is he thinks uh, happiness is kind of irrelevant to questions of politics. That like that's sort of like sure like you individually can worry about that if you feel like but that in general the serious stuff of life is just not that it doesn't really care about your feelings in that way like the nature of societal history and conflict is just a very different kind of register i think that my view is almost like um the opposite which is i kind of think that the question of politics just is the question of human life it's like okay we happen to exist this is this is again like pretty close to heidegger like we happen to exist we're thrown into the world we don't really know what we are or how it works and then working out like how you're going to live under those conditions is tough and it's it's a confusing thing and it's tough individually trying to run that experiment but it's also a societal thing like where our civilizations are running experiments of various kinds so my my misgiving about um the happiness literature is basically I think that America has run a particular kind of experiment in what it means to be human and how how to live. And we're actually getting lots and lots and lots of results back from this experiment about, hmm. um, you know, if, so so the reason that I, I like the story that, that we were talking about at the beginning is that um, it involves a kind of... Uh, it's it's like the people in the society that you would think are most able to achieve that version of like the American experiment. Like they're the ones who like you can say like, OK, yeah, like there are some people within the society that are not going to benefit. But the ones that are um, genuinely able to exercise the, our, ver our current iteration, our generation's version of the American dream, like those are the people who like really are going to be happy. And if it turns out that those people are not happy, that's like a big sort of that's a big data point that like something in the background foundational picture mm. of what we're doing here is kind of flawed. And I, I think, I think happiness studies, um, I had a friend point out to me that, um, if you look at how the 20th century, like kind of public writing has worked, like in the fifties and sixties, you had this genre that was like cultural criticism. So it's all of these people talking about what does it mean to be human? And then how does that work in terms of being in society? And since then, it's ba that genre of like politics of humanity has basically split into two different genres. One is like technical, technocratic political books about like how you calibrate housing policy. And the other one is self-help. Like it, get, it just yeah. has gotten divided. And so, and so I think my issue with happiness studies is that it basically, in many cases, I mean, I've, you know, it's a big literature and it's kind of complicated, but I think in many cases it accepts the background theory of the American, of America, American life of the American dream. And then it says, oh, and like, 
you know, that, that basic version, which is you should be an individual and you should strive and be economically successful and outcompete your neighbors and then buy your house, your house and like, or your flat in the city or your house in the suburbs. And then you'll be happy when that one starts failing. Then you also need these other principles to kind of make sure that you have mindfulness or you have like, you keep a gratitude journal or something. And like my, my, my thinking is like, uh, the same feeling that I have about the microdosing people, which is like, oh, like maybe you just like started running the experiment wrong. Like the idea that like the first thing that you should do is go figure out how to make $300,000 a year and like achieve that by the time you're a 29 year old and then you get it and you're kind of unhappy. Like maybe you should pay attention to that moment and be like, yeah, maybe there was a different experiment that I should be running. Okay, so what would you what would you suggest instead as an alternative? Yeah, so I think that... We sh- I think we're actually at a moment where our questions just have to get deeper. So the question of what human life is. So I so I really like we should come back to stoicism because I really like stoicism in general. I think it's really um, in its like fullest version, a very, very interesting thing because it is actually asking you, should you be ambitious? Is that actually the right goal? Or maybe there's something else that life should be oriented to. Um, but I, But I think... I think we're in this like strange moment where because the broader society is so dedicated to that specific theory of success, it makes it hard for any individuals to say, actually, that's not what I want to orient my life around. Like the costs suddenly become really, really high. And so, yeah. The costs are high on the individual level, but not necessarily on this. I mean, so I think there's a real trade-off here. So you have a bunch of unhappy people but they're actually doing amazing things in the world and being innovative and entrepreneurial and starting businesses. And, um, you know, we, not to kind of fall into the trope of like the tortured genius, but you do sort of need, you need some kind of adversity or discontent to be creative. Yeah, but but do you think like, do you think we really live in a period of like great art, for example? Like how frequently do you pick up a new novel or um, or go to a gallery and say like, yeah, like this is on the or like a new a new book of philosophy. Like, I mean, like that that piece that I that um, I wrote for you all back in the spring, like um, about um, Ibn Sina, the like great Islamic philosopher. Like if I compare a lot of the philosophy that's happening now to like the quality of what he's doing, like you can disagree with his particular direction, but there's like a there's like a depth and a quality to it that I, you know, yeah, for, to answer my own question, like I don't see in a lot of contemporary philosophy. Yeah, and I would highly recommend that people take a look back at that piece if they missed it. It's called, uh, the title is Thinking is Risky, right? Yeah, yeah. Yeah, so we'll have a link to that in the show notes. And you're saying that it's risky, but we should do more of it on a deeper level. Look, yeah, I, yeah, we should I be think, willing to take bigger existential risks. That's the yeah. that's like argument. Okay, I so I I can't speak to whether like American art is in a better place now than it was forty years ago. You'd probably need someone who actually like studies that. I I do think though, in terms of economic growth and and innovation, America is still at the top and seems to be ex- extending its lead over China. And we've seen. China's sort of semi-implosion. Some might argue it's actually something close to a full implosion. Um, America still really stands out. In, pre- in a previous episode, we talked about how, 
you know, some parts of Britain are kind of like third worldy. You know, not, I don't not because <laughs> let me clarify, not because there's a lot of immigrants there, but because it's it's just like economically kind of failing. And where Britain is actually comparable to Mississippi when it comes to its economic situation, at least on certain indicators. And if you look at the Eurozone more generally, they're just not able to kind of they're falling behind while America continues to kind of grow at a pretty impressive clip, all, all things considered. So like that to me is a pretty important data point if we value those things. And you might say, well, that maybe we shouldn't value them as much. But what if there is a trade-off? Like what if what if individuals have to be less happy for a society to be more successful? Yeah, yeah. So I th- so to push you there, so are you saying that you actually largely think the like collective products that America is currently embodying are themselves like actually like really attractive? Like this version of like a civilizational project <laughs> has worked really well. Look, I don't know. I mean, well, it depends which America we're talking about. Because if we start to talk about the changes that are happening, like, and one of them is, you know, significantly declining fertility rates, like that's obviously not great for civilization. Um, the fact that one out of every th- three teenage American girls has considered suicide apparently also not good. Um, So I'm not saying that we should like, we should try to like get that in order a little bit. But this idea, well, this brings us back to like, should people be happy? And maybe one way of addressing the happiness conundrum is telling people actually, you don't, you shouldn't be as happy as you think. And that's okay. And come to terms with that. And stop trying to fight it. I mean, it seems to me in your microdosing story, a lot of what's happening is that people refuse to accept that life is challenging and that there are trade-offs. That, yeah, if you did focus on your career a lot, like, you know, it might mean that you're not married now. It might mean that you haven't had a chance to build a family. Like, that's a trade-off. And instead of pretending that we can have it all simultaneously, we should just say, look, there are different things that are important. And if you really pursue aggressively one, it might cost you in another area of your life. You know, that's that's it. You're not get, there's no way to get around that conundrum. You just have to make a choice. Yeah. So like I I actually feel really good about kind of very ambitious societal arguments, but I think that the the and and heavy sort of personal burden in relation to that. I, I'm like actually like super comfortable with that. But I think that the the debate is over what version, like what kind of society do we actually want? And so to take like one example, I think a lot about how in uh, antiquity, the Roman practice at least was, at least in certain periods, was that the um, the parents and especially the father had the right to expose a child um, for a period sh- for a short period after the child was born. So that means child's born, just put it on the street to let it die, and nothing else said. Um, in contrast, like we live in a society in which we take significant collective resources. So if there's a child that's abandoned or say um, born into a 
like situation where there's um, a drug problem with parents. Like we take significant collective resources to pull that child in, usually um, like at like a lot of expense, like make sure that it's being held in a hospital, taken care of. But then we also like try to have um, volunteers hold that child for as close to 24 hours a day as possible because we think that level of like communal and direct care is like actually mm. like super important. So that's like an example of a very like ambitious societal project, one that's like very costly actually, including to the individuals that are exercising, but all of us. I mean, like it's like a tax, you know, usually like a tax funded thing. Um, that's like a picture of a society that has analyzed human life, taken particular things that it cares about, and then is willing to make collective sacrifices for it. Like I'm to- I'm totally fine with that actually, and I think I think that there's a lot of that that's really attractive. I think that my critique is aimed a little bit more at the way in which, you know, like when we're talking about you should have like individual suffering suffering for a collective good if that collective good is like equated to as we were talking about earlier like gdp growth or like being able to like shoot shoot self-driving cars into space you're a little bit like okay like that seems fine for like yeah but it doesn't it like it does it's a lot harder for me to have like a strong moral conviction that like yeah that's like a really good thing that we should be sacrificing for okay can you maybe then huh can you maybe outline a little bit more tangibly like how we would reorient or restructure society in order to pursue better things and better outcomes? Obviously, I was being maybe slightly facetious in emphasizing GDP growth earlier because I obviously, you know, that's obviously not everything. I do think it's important, though. But like, yes, that can't be that can't be everything. And um it would be nice to have a society that we feel good about and that is actually coalescing around things that are shared by human beings who have morals and values. But it's not clear to me how exactly that can be done. Like part of the issue is that once you're inculcated in the American style of life, it becomes very hard to... un you would have to change your entire personality. So if someone said, Shadi, you're you're very ambitious. Um, maybe you should try being less ambitious and like move to Denmark and like own a coffee shop or something. This is actually somewhat similar to what a lot of happiness writers suggest to their readers. They're like, um, focus less on your career. And there's an irony there because these are incredibly successful people who are writing best-selling books. And the only reason they were able to write best-selling books is because they were very ambitious in like advancing in whatever field they happen to be in. And now once they reach the pinnacle, I was, they're telling- I was, I was on a panel like this with one of these people earlier in the summer who uh, had- had been a director of a major institution in DC. And then like the great story about like sacrifices was that like leaving that position ended up at Harvard and you're like, well, that's, that's great. Like that's an amazing <laughs> monumental sacrifice. You know, like, no, like I do look, I think this is hard actually. Like I, so um, I think it's actually, this shows up. So there's this, this growing movement. It probably started, maybe even a decade ago of people who are reading something that I care about and like, um, 
you know, like an expert in, which is ancient philosophy. And they're, they're trying to pick it up in a contemporary way. So you have a whole bunch of people reading, um, like Epicureanism, Stoicism, a whole bunch of these kinds of texts. It goes from, it's interesting, like it's, it's being picked up in different places. Like it's picked up on the far right, actually, in like a very disturbing way where it's like, Hmm. there's a very abstracted, um, I think idealized and totally historically and intellectually um, irresponsible and wrong vision of European philosophy, what it was and how it worked and seeing it as like a kind of like totally self-contained culture that had particular ideals and brutality to it actually that they really admire that. Okay. So there's like one version of that. And I do think it's actually like really interesting to think about why people now feel a certain attraction to kind of like Homeric violence and like the will of people just contending against each other there's a there's one very interesting question there but it's also showing up in like the kind of culture we were talking about earlier which is like um bay area like highly successful tech tech world and kind of similar similar like successful places where people want to adopt um stoicism or like other kinds of vaguely ascetic practices that they then integrate into their lives my my experience of that is that sometimes so this like ryan holiday has like written on this kind of stuff whatever um my experience of of that is that sometimes it is actually getting the point like there there are occasions when i i look at this stuff in in like that kind of popular level and think yeah like this there's a part of this that actually starts to seem accurate to the ancient intent but usually when i look at it um so the word syncretism like usually means like mushing together different religious forms with each other. So you get like um, Aztec practices uh, like mixed into like Catholicism in, in Latin America. Right. Or Jubus. So, like, yeah. Right. Exactly. So that, <laughs> yes. So, so those right. are like, that's just like a little shorthand for Jewish Buddhists. I guess it's yeah. like a whole thing. Someone mentioned to me earlier today, actually, and I wasn't <laughs> super aware of it, but yeah. Yeah. Right. Right. Exactly. And so like, so I think, I basically think that like what's happened. So, so I had, um, I had a really interesting exchange with someone about this earlier in the summer where like we were talking about, um, we were talking about the way that philosophy has worked and he was like, Oh yeah. Like, I think it's so cool how much like philosophy can like go along with success. And I was like, (laughs) tell me about that. How does that work? And he's like, you know, like, I mean, you can like do fasting, but then like, you know, like also be like a successful tech exec. And I was like, interesting. Like, this is like, this is like a very specific play. And I was like that, um, tell me about like how that works in Epictetus. And he's like, oh, I don't know anything about Epictetus. Like that's, this is just like sort of Bay area kind of thing. And I think that that's the point, right? So, um, I think when you look at how stoicism worked in its original iteration, the point was if you orient your life around ambition and success as the primary thing, that will always leave you unhappy. Like that, that's the crushing decision. Like as soon as you make that decision, no matter what else you do, you're going to find yourself in this state of anxiety and worry. You're going to like constantly be striving to gain things or you're going to be afraid of, of losing what you've gained. And it's going to leave you in this kind of like internal tangle. Um, and so like the practices that are recommended are ways of figuring out how can you actually sit aloof from that, drive just to always secure your your sense of your sense of self in the world through wealth and ambition and fame and honor and that 
so the problem with that when we when we're looking at the contemporary world is that that genuinely cuts against like our basic civilizational project like if you say okay i'll actually just lose like i won't win within the kind of meritocratic system that's just a terrifying decision for most people to make and i i don't I don't actually blame most individuals for not making that decision, but I do think societally we have a really big problem that it's so hard to make that decision. Um, collect- but it's like also we make that, collective decisions to make that very difficult. But it's also that losing when you think you can win is different than losing. Like I think that once you introduce like the possibility of something better, it becomes like if you told someone ambitious, like just sort of what I was saying earlier, even if I know everything that you're saying and I fully grasp that ambition is the path towards unhappiness and discontent, a lot of people realize that. But the alternative, which is losing or being a loser. <laughs> to, yeah, yeah, yeah. Like, do we really think that that would all of a sudden introduce happiness? Because there's something already in the wiring of our brains and minds that is like oriented around a certain kind of like you know processing satisfaction like i just wonder can you tell like someone who's you know in their 30s oh everything you've been doing up until this moment is wrong and you've been orienting your life around this false promise restructure your life son and then like just walk me through okay i mean i because I feel yeah. like the challenge here is that a lot of us intuitively know that there is a better way to live. It's just like really hard to do in the modern world, yeah. especially well, in the American system. And this is where like I do, this is where a lot of my like lefty economic views come come from, where I I think we have, there's a, there's a book by Michael Sandel called What Money Can't Buy, where he sort of charts out how many aspects of um, like sort of background cultural structures part so the phenomenon he's tracing is the way that capitalism gradually takes things that were kind of resident in human life and then figures out a way to repackage them and sell them back to you turn them into like monetizable <laughs> yeah. products so one of his most famous examples is this daycare where um they or maybe like elementary school something where they had these uh these policies where it was like hey like you need to pick up your kid at three or whatever and then like you had all these parents like just like gradually like not picking up their kids on time and so then the daycare is like oh well i guess what we should do is like put in some penalty so we'll like put in a fee so like for every 15 minutes you have to pay like 10 bucks like (laughs) that you're like not picking up your kid and so then like what they find out is that uh the rate of parents like not picking up their kids on time goes way up rather than down as soon as they put in the fee because then it's the parents... easier just to pay it. You're just paying a fee to have more time. Exactly. Yeah. So like the back, the previous arrangement was one of trust. They're like, oh, like I um, have responsibility to this specific person who needs to get home to like get on with their lives. Like this teacher is just sitting there watching my child, and I like I feel really bad about. It. And then like suddenly like when it becomes a fee arrangement. It's just a transaction. Like, who gives a damn about that person, whatever they're doing with their lives? Like, Because you're paying them effectively. Yeah, right, exactly. And so I I think that, like, to you know, to the theme of everything we've been talking about, I think America's theory of life is basically that most interactions should be transactions of that kind. Like, we're, we're very far down the path of saying 
how humans should relate to each other is through quid pro quo. And I'm very skeptical that that civilizational project will, I think unless, I think that that can kind of, we can keep ratcheting that up and like continue that. But I do think the kind of despair that I see in a lot of people our age, like, you know, we're now like getting close to the age where like you see a lot of burnout. And I think a lot of that burnout is because people initially experience the threat of a society that says like, unless you transact in this way, unless you kind of accrue enough status and success to be able to have like a little bit of security within the system, like there's not going to be a place for you. And people make that decision very sensibly but then over time that's all that they have right like that level of transactionalism and so um i think a lot of my own politics comes down to the idea that i want to find ways to make it so that there are resident places within society and like features of like there's always going to be a transactional aspect i think that that's that's just kind of a background feature but I want there to be resident places where you're not principally instrumentalized, like where the interaction here is not one where someone is trying to extract value from you in some kind of fashion, but like you are actually just present, recognized as a human being and given place. Like there's, it's, this is like a kind of picture of politics that does have like a public place for love actually, like where what it means to exist as a person in the world is recognized with a kind of weight and dignity to it that's not just transactional. Okay. Um, and yeah, and I think there are there are totally like sensible economic policies that you can put in place to like make it so that that's a lot easier. But isn't the problem that we're trying to solve a spiritual? And, and I, I'm I'm, to- I'm totally willing to have like fewer self-driving cars in space, like to yeah. be able to have that that more that less. I'm pretty sure the self-driving design. cars are like on this planet, unless there's like something new they're trying. Well, didn't to Didn't like do Elon up. Musk shoot a Tesla into space like <laughs> like four years ago <laughs> just because he could? Yeah, yeah, yeah. That is kind of funny. That's it for part one, dear listeners. There's a lot more where that came from. If you're not yet a paying subscriber, please head on over to wisdomofcrowds.live and become one. Help support our work. Hope to see you in the bonus.